0: This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. When the on and off ex-girlfriend of Ryan Poston called 911, her strange behavior and the evidence collected soon would cast doubt on her version of events. Was this a tragic case of domestic violence or jealousy triggered by a big date with a beauty queen? This is Episode 54, The Shana Huber Story.
1: Hey, Megan, how are you?
0: I'm great. I am working hard on a podcast about serial murder that we just wrapped recording on. And we're putting on the finishing touches now. And this is basically everything that you would want to know about the motives, the theories, and types of serial offenders. This is based on a class I teach, and we interviewed world experts. We interviewed a serial offender, a serial killer. So we have a lot of really interesting information on the podcast. So this one's going to be good. As for today's case, I had some help researching this case from Ava Villaverde. Amy, we had so many listeners email us asking to cover this case. Did you see those emails? Of course I did. So many thanks to those of you who suggested and wrote about it. You know, we try to take all the suggestions, but especially ones where a number of people are interested. And this is definitely a hot topic. And I think a lot of
1: our patrons suggested this one.
0: Yeah, definitely. A couple of our patrons did as well. And speaking of support, Amy, let's take a moment to thank our listeners who made contributions for which we are so grateful. Great. Let's do it. Okay. So we have Annie. Jamie Wiener and the two Elizabeths. We have Elizabeth Gunaka. I really hope I got that one right. And Elizabeth Handler. Thank you, ladies. We look forward to seeing you at our next AMA.
1: And it's because of supporters like you that we can continue to bring you quality content.
0: And we're thrilled to announce you can listen now, ad free to every episode for only $2 a month on Patreon or now through Apple's
1: new podcast subscriptions right there on Apple's podcast app. And for our $5 tier and up, not only do supporters get the ad-free episodes, you'll also get one additional exclusive episode of Women in Crime each month. We are so humbled by
0: all of your support. And if you join Patreon right now for $5 or more on top of the normal perks and swag, we'll send you a limited edition Women in Crime nail polish in red, of course, while supplies last. So Amy, a good place to start off today's case would be to introduce Shayna Hubers. Shayna Michelle Hubers was born on April 8th, 1991, to Sharon and Robert Hubers. I found very little about her relationship with her parents, just so you know, but I did find that Shayna's mom, a retired school teacher, was very close with her daughter. Friends of Shayna's during her earlier years described her as incredibly smart and motivated academically, but also very dramatic. Now, there are some claims that Shayna may have suffered some early trauma, but I'd like to save that discussion for a later section of this case where it's more relevant. Now, let's move on to talk about how Shayna and Ryan Poston met. Shayna had a long-term goal to pursue a master's in school counseling, and while studying psychology at the University of Kentucky, Shayna met a guy through Facebook named Ryan Poston. Now, at the time, Hubers was 19 and Ryan was 28. So there's, you know, a significant nine-year age gap there, which I think at the at the time or the stages of their life can be a little bit problematic. You know what I mean? So he's in his career and more developed and she's still an undergrad and you know what I mean? So age gaps aren't always a problem, but I, I feel like that one might have. Well,
1: especially because it sounds like she might be immature for her age based on the way people described her. Right.
0: Wow. Very insightful already, Amy. Uh, Like I said, he was well into his career as an attorney, while Shana Hubers was still an undergraduate and still studying. Within an 18-month dating period, the couple were on again and off again, with Ryan seemingly trying to end the relationship on several occasions, and Shana very clearly not interested in ending things.
1: Once again, you see how she's not mature enough for a relationship because- Most people would, if someone doesn't want to be with you, you kind of walk away from that.
0: And Ryan's friends said that he was a really nice guy. They said he was too nice. He would back down from breaking up with Shayna because he felt bad. And, you know, she would get really upset and then he would feel bad. He didn't, you know, he didn't want to be the bad guy. Mm -hmm. But on October 11th, 2012, while watching the presidential debate with his stepfather, Ryan told him that he was ending it for good with Shayna, and he was excited about a big date he had the next evening, which would be the night of October 12th. Early morning of October 12th, Shayna Hubers texted Ryan saying that she had chest pains and went to the hospital. She was staying with Poston at the time and had left his house with her mother because of these supposed chest pains. She claimed that she underwent an EKG. And she told Poston about the medicine she was about to be put on, even though there was no medical record ever of her going to the hospital. And according to her mother, she did come pick up Shayna and she seemed disturbed. She said Shayna clearly seemed upset. But they didn't go to the hospital. Instead of going to the hospital, they went shopping. Police assumed she made this up basically in order to get attention from post Clearly. Yeah. Things, I mean, things weren't going well. They weren't trending well. And it was almost like a test. Too. Again,
1: not a mature 19-year-old. no.
0: And forensic investigator, a forensic investigator later testified that while Shana was alerting, posting about her health conditions, she was Googling like high blood pressure, heart disease symptoms. The forensic investigator said, and I quote, for instance, she'll search medication for left ventricular hypertrophy. And right after she sends a message to Ryan saying that she had left ventricular hypertrophy and the medication she was going to have to start taking for that. So, yeah, this is clearly an example of her, you know, making this up and trying to get attention. And remember, this is in the morning of the same evening that Ryan is going to have a big date. On this night, he was supposed to meet with Audrey Bolte, a runner up for Miss Ohio in the Miss America pageant. Both Audrey and Ryan were super excited to meet. Investigators saw that Hubers knew about this date because she hacked his Facebook and she saw their messages back and forth, planning the date. And this is something that Shayna did regularly, hacking his accounts, blocking women, and really cyber-stalking him, Amy. So for a long time, historically, remember, stalking wasn't a crime. Stalking and harassment really became a crime, or one with actual punishment in, like, the late 80s and early 90s. But there was no real such thing as cyber-stalking on the books until we actually had the expanse of internet and whatnot but it should be taken more seriously now, and it was definitely, for him, you know, there were red flags here, unfortunately, with her behavior, and I think she was escalating in her, you know, stalking of him, and especially, you know, hacking and breaking into things. Audrey bolty took the stand in the trial, saying that the plans were set to meet at a low-key bar, however, Poston never showed up, nor did she hear from him again, and she described being really upset because she thought that he was standing her up, and she couldn't believe it, and they had been so excited to meet, so she she also gave some key testimony later on. Shortly after Ryan missed his date with Audrey, Shayna Hubers called 911 claiming she had killed her boyfriend, Ryan Poston. She had shot him six times with his own gun in his own home. When the police arrived, she claimed self-defense and she was then taken in for an interrogation where she claimed that Ryan was abusive and that she killed him because he was physically violent with her and he had pointed the gun at her first that day. The interrogation is something that everyone's got to look up. This is one of the I think this is one of the reasons that people are so fascinated with this case. Shayna talked a lot during the interrogation, and she was both irrational and sensitive. She was all over the place. I think she initially said I-, I shouldn't talk without a lawyer, but then went on to talk for Hours and hours.
1: Is she the one who did handstands in the interrogation? That was Jodi Arias. Okay. And
0: so, but Shayna's behavior was so similar that actually these two cases are compared quite frequently. Yes. So let me tell you about some of her behavior. She said things like, will anyone want to marry me now if they know I killed my boyfriend? To the investigator, one of the most controversial things she said was that she claimed that Ryan was a very vain person and he spoke about getting a nose job. And she shot him in the face one of the times. And she joked and said, well, I guess I finally gave him the nose job he always wanted. I mean, this was this was very shocking. I think everyone was surprised to hear her say something like this. She also told police that while she shot him in self-defense, while he was still alive, brace yourself for this one, he was twitching and making these noises so she shot him an additional few times because she couldn't stand to hear the twitching and the noises he was making. He was, he was
1: dying. He and was, she still thinks that's self-defense. Exactly.
0: He's dying and gasping for breath. He's gurgling. And she shoots him because she can't stand to hear the noise. Okay. If it was self-defense, again, I mean, I don't want to get too much into this now, but she didn't call the police then when he was incapacitated. You know, she killed him. Also in the interrogation room, she was left alone for um, some time. And, you know, they had the cameras. They always have the cameras on you. And she was prancing around the room, pacing around, singing Amazing Grace. It was odd. She was also recorded saying things like, I just can't believe I did it. And I'm so good at acting. Uh, Again, I just encourage you to look at it. This interrogation reminds me, again, entirely of the Jodi Arias interview in which she overshared and acted so bizarrely. She also did Mm -hmm. the headstands as you, she sang, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, lots of odd behavior. So I think that's why these two cases are often compared. Shana was then arrested unsurprisingly for murder and had a $5 million bond set in her case. Let's talk a little bit about obsession because this is really the cornerstone of the prosecution's case later on when they go to trial. It became obvious that Hubers was obsessed with Poston. So it wasn't terribly difficult to build a case against her with the rationale being, you know, if I can't have him, no one can. An online forensic expert showed that Hubers. Sent Ryan 50,000 to 100,000 texts and 20,000 Facebook messages
1: between February and October. So, wait, <laughs> is this when texts were, you still have to pay? Remember in the olden days, you had to pay for texts like five cents per incoming and five cents for outgoing or oh something? My, I didn't even think of that. Jeez, that would when have been... was this? 2012? Yeah, no, I don't oh, think you okay. still did. It
0: would <laughs> have been really expensive though. But l- listen, if you break down that math, that averages on a low end, and I mean a low end, about 200 messages a day, about
1: 1,500 a week, and 6,000 a month. That's crazy. That is obsessive stalking. And do we know what those texts would say? Does that come out also at trial?
0: It, it definitely does, yeah. I mean, sometimes they were just her trying to get his attention. Hi, you there? Why aren't you answering me? Ryan would rarely reply to her. In fact, to put it in the proper context, on average, for every 100 texts Shayna sent, Poston would send one in return. Wow. So, I mean, that- Poor guy, this is stalking behavior. This is stalking. And this was also, again, this is another reason they compared it to Jodi Arias' trial, because remember, Jodi Arias also- stalked Travis. There's a a pattern, too, of like escalation. Back to Poston, the night before he was shot, Ryan was watching the vice presidential debate with his family. Uh, I had mentioned that earlier. When his stepfather testified later on at trial, he said that he asked Ryan, what's going on? And Ryan said, dad, she won't leave me alone. She won't leave my home. So she, she was at his home and he wanted her to leave and she wouldn't leave. His stepfather said, Ryan, that's crazy. That's your home. She needs to leave. And he said during that night of the debate that he could hear Ryan's phone ringing with text messages all night long. But he said that he was relieved because Ryan had said that he was finished. This was it. He was moving on. And Ryan had told Shayna that he wanted her to leave and he wanted time to himself. But Shayna, remember, also was hacking his Facebook. So she also knew what was going on. Okay, let's talk about more of the evidence. Evidence. Aside from what Shayna stated, you know, during the interrogation and during her 911 call and the evidence of obsessive behaviors, there was a lot of physical evidence that made it her story not plausible. For example, she told police that she shot Ryan in an act of self-defense after he came at her during an argument. The evidence to refute this, the apartment, uh, if you look at the scene, she claimed that Ryan threw her into a bookshelf or a display case of tobacco pipes However, when investigators arrived at the scene, they described that display case standing perfectly upright and untouched. Nothing was disturbed. You know, nothing fell off. There was a second shelf next to it with 10 aluminum shells of various sizes, also standing upright, which seemed very odd in a small space if there was a physical altercation that involved shoving things would be knocked over, right? We've seen this before. A second part of the puzzle here, there's really no sign of injury. When Shayna went in for booking, photographs were taken as they usually are. However, the photographs showed no signs of major bruising on her body. If the fight was as terrible as she claimed, there should have been at least some bruising on the torso, arms, or legs, I recall she had a slight bruise around her wrist on her lower arm, but that was the only thing that I had seen. We certainly don't know where that small bruise came from, but it didn't indicate anything of a serious fight, as as Shayna explained. So basically, they concluded, based on her, her physical condition, that she was not in any type of struggle. Now, the blood evidence. This is really helpful. There was blood on the lap area of Ryan Poston's sweatpants, However, not on the bottom of his shirt, on the waistband of the pants. This helps support the investigator's theory, which was that Poston was shot in the head while sitting, and he fell onto the table and bled onto the table and onto his lap, then finally falling on the floor, which is not how Shana initially described this event. The chair's cushion that investigators believed he was sitting on had a line of blood and then a swipe of blood to the right, which is how blood would be moved if someone was sitting there and fell off the chair, so the blood patterns were consistent with him sitting and falling down. Crime scene photos showed Ryan lying on his right side next to the chair, legs bent, with a swipe of blood on the wall behind him. So I'll, I'll also explain this because Shayna will talk about, you know, her her story changes. So I'll get into that. Investigators also found possible evidence on Shayna's phone. After Ryan once again broke up with her, she wrote to a friend. I have a key. I'm showing up cooking dinner and telling him that this is the most fucked up thing he's ever put me through. <laughs> this this is not obviously, you know, normal behavior. That's the evidence. And I wanted to talk about that. But now let's let's get into the trial because Shayna's is not taking a plea. On December 20th, 2012, Shana Hubers was indicted for the murder of Ryan Poston. And on January 16th, 2013, she pleaded not guilty. And then her murder trial began on April 13th, 2015. The reason I give you this timeline also is that she was unable to make bail. So she stayed in a Kentucky jail for the two and a half years until trial.
1: Wow. Yeah, that's it's
0: a long a time. Long time. Um, in serious or significant murder cases, though, you know, they usually do take a couple of years to build. And remember, her bond was really high. Mm-hmm. Part of the prosecution's case was to prove that Hubers was obsessed with Poston. And many of Poston's family members testified to this. And they had the cell phone evidence and the other electronic evidence. They had Shayna's own words in her interview, which was recorded and played for the jury. They had the forensic evidence showing that Ryan was shot while sitting down and shot in the head and then several more times after incapacitated. They had the fact that Shayna had no injuries and the crime scene didn't show evidence of a struggle. Then they also had jailhouse informants. So let me tell you some of the things the jailhouse informants said. Cecily Miller, a former cellmate of Shana's, testified that Shana laughed and bragged about shooting Ryan. She also testified that Shana confessed her legal strategy, saying that she was going to plead insanity, but she was too smart because she had the IQ of Einstein. So instead, she was going to plead battered wife syndrome. The thing here, Amy, is that, you know, this this very well may be true, but I don't like the use of jailhouse informants as as witnesses. What are your feelings about jailhouse informants?
1: I think if jailhouse informants are going to be used, then all the incentives need to be disclosed to the jury, as well as that individual's history of being an informant. Because then if we see a pattern, and also I think whatever an informant says has to be corroborated. I don't think we can rely solely on informant testimony.
0: Yeah, no, I, yeah. I think that's uh-huh. fair enough. I'm I'm generally opposed to it. But then, of course, there's going to be the one or two informants that are legit and it's real. But in general, I'm not a fan of using this type of testimony. <laughs> Shayna's defense team now had a very hard task in front of them because they were trying to build a case for her being an abused woman. And, and again, this is the tactic used in Jodi Arias' trial. They were trying to build this, you know, the, the case that Jodi was an abused
1: woman as well.
0: They had an email or two showing that Ryan was angry and some text messages that weren't very nice.
1: Um, I'd be angry too if somebody was sending me hundreds of text messages a day and not leaving my home.
0: Absolutely. Um, Ryan was in a dispute with some business partners, too. So I think that they pulled one or two of the emails about like a dispute and him being angry. But uh, honestly, this this evidence wasn't very strong, especially because he had a lot of character witnesses that described him as being a really good guy.
1: And it's also not fair to him because we often see a lot of times in cases, if the tables are turned the way they, you know, will... Assassinate a woman. You know, it happens to men too. Absolutely. Good point. Shayna did
0: not take the stand at her trial, which lasted for two weeks. After five hours of deliberation, the jury found Shayna guilty of murder. Four months later, she was sentenced to 40 years in prison with parole eligibility after 20 years served. But the story does not end there, Amy. Why not? Well, Hubers appealed her case and was granted an appeal in 2016 due to juror misconduct. What misconduct, you ask, Amy? Well, apparently one of the jurors lied about being a convicted felon. Which is a serious no no. That is
1: very bad.
0: Yeah. We always talk about appeals and they really are rare, but, yeah. you know, juror misconduct seems to be one of the situations in which people are actually granted appeals. So this is round two now. Shayna's second trial began on August 8th, 2018. Once again, her defense team tried to build a case around Ryan Poston being an abusive boyfriend. This time, however, Shayna took the stands in her trial. Yeah, things got interesting there, for sure. Shayna stated that there was a history of physical and verbal abuse from Ryan. She testified that the relationship was sexually problematic because of her inability to fake an orgasm. What? Yes. She said that she basically had problems in that area and that he would become very frustrated with her. I know. She said in 2012, Ryan asked her for a specific sexual request that she refused, and she said, It felt degrading. I don't know if I trusted him. I feared him. She went from, I mean, I I don't, you know, this is a real leap. And again, this reminds me of Arius all over again, but Mm -hmm. a sexual act that I didn't want to do, which, you know. She's
1: just grasping at straws, trying to garner sympathy.
0: Absolutely. She said she feared Ryan from their first time meeting when he strongly grabbed her hand and dragged her to the second bar of the night. Uh, I mean he she said at the bar he tightly grabbed my thigh under the table and she ran to the bathroom to call a cab and go home I don't you know know if any of that is substantiated although you know the argument there is that well
1: When we have real victims. I know. I was just going to say, but of course, on the other hand, we do want to acknowledge that sometimes people are victimized and they don't seek help, but I don't see that here. That's absolutely true. And sometimes people, they absolutely stay in abusive relationships, Mm -hmm. but this was a
0: first date and she's saying, you know, he grabbed me, I was scared and I left. I would find it harder to Mm -hmm. believe that she would then, you know, seek out her. A second date and relationship. She also recounted times where they would get drunk and have rough sex. She also recalled a time that Ryan locked her out of the apartment on the porch after getting angry with her. She said that Ryan slammed the door on her body multiple times when she tried to get back in. Anyone corroborate anything of violence with Ryan? One of
1: Ryan's neighbors
0: said that Shayna came over crying once or twice.
1: But she was probably crying because didn't people describe her as dramatic and... She clearly was unstable in some ways, right? I think
0: so as well. Yeah. Um. As for the night of the incident, Shana said that Ryan physically threw her around and was yelling at her. And then he grabbed a gun and pointed it at her. But then he put the gun down on the table and walked around the table. She said that Ryan sat down but appeared to be getting up and she wasn't sure if he was going to reach for the gun. So she grabbed it and shot him. That's her explanation now.
1: I mean, I think it's weak. That's a totally different explanation than the first trial, It it is
0: different than the first
1: trial. Not only that, even what she explains there does not meet the criteria for self-defense. I know every state is different, but from what I understand, it used to be in imminent danger. If any part of that was true, if he had pointed a gun at her and went to grab it again. Yeah, but she could have just taken the gun and not shot him, but just removed
0: the weapon from the situation. That's true. There's different standards, but yeah. no, th- there's different standards okay. because it's sometimes the argument could be that he could have overpowered her, yeah. went for her quickly. Yeah. So, I mean, if that was mm-hmm. a true explanation, I think that story is false. But if it was true, yeah. Shayna admitted on the stand to obsessive behaviors. Uh, she actually admitted to being jealous, insecure, and she said that she hit Ryan in the face once. She also described a history of sexual abuse. In this trial, she said that she was molested sexually as a child and as a teen on multiple occasions.
1: And let me ask you, is she bringing this up? How is this relevant? Because she's trying to say it made her hypervigilant or, you know, I'm just wondering, like this isn't a sentencing hearing. No, but it might go to her state of mind. That's what I'm wondering. Like, obviously it's not being used as a mitigating factor with sentencing, but it seems like, To bring it up during... Well, you know what? Why don't I tell you what a psychologist
0: testified to? This might help uh, place you in some context because she was actually interviewed by a psychologist for... 37 hours over a six-day period, you know, a significant period of time. And according to the psychologist, he said that Shayna simply did not wanna grow up. She had separation anxiety and still slept in the same bed as her mother until she was a teenager. The psychologist also reported, again, several instances of sexual abuse from when Shayna was young up until when she was a late teenager, resulting in an inability to have healthy relationships with men and leading to promiscuity, heavy drinking, and other characteristics of borderline personality disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder from being assaulted. Huber said that she was assaulted at a party in 2007, but never reported it. And while we could not verify this, the timing of the incident seemed to have, by accounts from other people, coincided with a real shift in her behavior, in particular that heavy drinking and promiscuity. So certainly I have no idea if her reports are accurate, but the psychologist felt that she was victimized and, that, and that's what I think they were using him to establish, that she was a victim and these led to certain conditions. So even if she's not pleading insanity, I think they're using this as part of her you know, defense. Prosecutors used three felons this time who shared a cell with Shayna Hubers. They went to Cecily Miller, but they also used Donna Dooley and Holly Nivens. And they each testified that Shayna said that she killed the 29-year-old lawyer because of their split, because he was leaving her. Nivens testified that she overheard Shayna on the phone with her mother, saying Ryan's family was rich enough to buy another son. So that was just not very flattering. Quote, she would get on the phone and cry and sing to her mom and say there's worse crimes than murder, Duly said of Hubers. Miller said Hubers cackled as she talked in jail about Ryan. There was no remorse, she said. And then she said, "I gave him the nose job he always wanted." She also could have read about that. She absolutely could have read about that. I mean, again, Shayna broke down at, uh, at certain point. During a recess, she broke into tears, hugging one of her attorneys. This was the first time and really the only time that she showed a lot of emotion during the trial. And so that means nothing either way, but it was just something to note because people would might ask about what was her affect during the trial and did certain things bother her? The prosecutors then brought in Howard Ryan, who was the forensic expert on the case. Howard Ryan testified that Ryan Poston's head slumped towards the kitchen table he was at from the first shot to his forehead. Ryan testified Two more shots into his back came from less than three feet away as he was still seated and his body then fell. And after that, three more shots were fired into his torso at less than three feet away. This was the real mm-hmm. damning evidence of the trial. It looked like an assassination. I think it was. Well, the jury agreed. They once again found Shayna guilty of murder and she was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole. But she got a worse sentence this time. She got life. Her earliest available parole is not until 2032, and we'll see what she has to say
1: at that time about her crime. She'll still be quite young. How old will she be? Do I look like a mathematician to you? No, no. She was born in math. 91. She'll only be 41 years old.
0: Well, okay, that's her earliest available okay. parole. Okay. I highly doubt she's going to get okay. parole.
1: I, I mean, I don't. Well, think it's so. possible if she spends the next couple of decades doing the right thing and showing remorse, she might.
0: Well, something interesting that happened after that's not really related. She's incarcerated at Kentucky Correctional Institute for Women, and her name came up in the news in 2018 when she petitioned for a marriage license. She met her now ex-spouse, Unique Taylor, a transgendered inmate during her time incarcerated, and the two married but divorced less than a year later.
1: Hmm. That's um, interesting.
0: I know. Uh, it was actually I think one of the only interviews that Shayna gave was an interview about her marriage. This was before she got married. They were
1: at the same facility? They were yeah, okay. they were
0: at the same facility and they were petitioning and Shayna was convinced that she was get like they were slowing the process because it was her and it was punitive. So she did an interview with a reporter about it and you know he was trying to ask more about the trial and she's like I don't want to talk about that and he's like okay, but you know we have to discuss that briefly. Um, I haven't seen her much in the news since then, but I have a feeling that that won't be the end of it. Now, do you think that was just another way for her to get attention? No, I actually think that she legitimately, I think she's probably also like- A love addict. Yes, a love addict in that way. And I think- you know the way she describes the meeting. I met this beautiful soul. Everything was great. I was so in love. I think it happens very fast for her. I think it was in her head, legit. And I think the reason that you know perhaps the relationship ended is because I think they were separated, separate facilities, or something of that nature. Now that we're at the end of our story, um, let's talk about our opinions. I want to start with a little bit of criminological theory. Amy, what do you what do you, <sighs> do, you see, do you see anything? I mean, um, I'll tell you what I see. All right.
1: I think, you know me, I'm always very sympathetic, you know, and trying to not provide excuses, but provide some understanding or just explanation. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a case where it's rational choice theory. I mean, other things come into this, like a loss of self-control, you know, so you have general theory of crime a little bit that she had low self-control and, and then that led to her being impulsive. But I also think this was a situation where she was exercising free will, you know, she Love this man who she saw slipping away, and it was, you know, if I can't have him, nobody can. There seems like there might have been some attachment disorders going on as referenced by that psychologist in the second trial, but I don't really know enough about her background to even talk about that. That's fair. I'm always going to go back to strain theory. You always do. Well, because anytime you see an event acting as a catalyst, mm-hmm. it's, it just lends itself to strain, right? She, her finding out that he was dating someone else after she was already slipping, you know, he was already slipping away from her And she lacked the proper coping mechanism to deal with this. And she acted out. I agree with you on that one. I think like that triggered her. And then, of course, her claiming self-defense speaks right to neutralization theory. Absolutely. Denial of responsibility. Okay. If you've heard us before, techniques
0: of neutralization are those excuses that allow someone to basically feel, you know, not feel justified and not guilty. And
1: yeah, so I, I think a little bit of a lot. Um, That's interesting. You have a lot going on there. I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't see, I'm not zeroed in on any because I don't feel like I know enough. What are you thinking?
0: I do see rational choice. I think there was a little bit of, she's not rational, right? So that's the problem with rational choice theory. It assumes that we are all rational. We make these decisions. There were decisions she made, right? In her mind, she was rational. In her mind, Mm -hmm. she was making these decisions and, you know, step by step doing them. So I do see rational choice. I definitely think she was borderline personality disorder. Mm -hmm. I see clear and convincing evidence of that. I thought general strain because I think the panic of losing him, like she just could not cope with that. And I don't believe for one second that Ryan Poston was abusing her and she killed him in self-defense. I think it was the panic that pushed her over the edge because of her instability in relationships and that goes along with borderline and her intense fear of neglect and I think she simply could not allow him to leave her. So for me, yeah, I saw this borderline personality, which is really the, the underlying
1: cause of the problem. Which is probably why she lacked the proper coping mechanisms to deal with the strain of potentially losing him. Exactly. And then she made a decision, and the mm-hmm. decision was she wasn't going to let
0: him live without her. We just
1: made up our own integrated theory of crime.
0: I know, we actually did. <laughs> I'm kind of impressed. <laughs> Lastly, let's talk about whether or not the criminal justice system got it right. So she has, again, as a reminder life with the possibility of parole in 20 years, after 20 years.
1: I have a little bit of a problem with the fact that she was so young when she committed this crime. And when she's released, she still has about more than half her life to live, assuming, you know, she grows to be old. So you don't, you're, you're saying is you don't want to see her paroled at at the first point. Yeah, but you know how I am too. If she spends the next, how many more years from now? Uh, oh, she's oh thought- 10, 10, only 10 more years from now. Yeah, though. she's got about 10 years. So I'd want to know what was she doing during this time? Has she has she stopped telling these lies? Has she taken ownership? Is she showing remorse? Is she trying to better herself and doing productive things with her time? And then maybe yeah. I could- talk about seeing her walk out at the age of 40, but that's 41. It's just so young. and i It's too young for me. You know,
0: I always go a little more punitive. I don't necessarily think that she has to serve a life sentence to satisfy my uh, need, but I'd like to see her older than her 40s for Mm -hmm. a couple reasons. I want to see her age out of crime. And also, to be honest, with her instability and whatnot, I'd be concerned about her having children. I don't know if that's an appropriate thing to say. No, that makes sense. I I would just be concerned about her her ability and what would happen in a relationship I'm just not sure that I would
1: and and based on you know her need for affection her need for attention I think she would be somebody if she got out you know and of childbearing age or even of age to adopt a child I think she would probably do that. Yeah. And I just I, yeah, I just I fear there would be some consequences. Mm-hmm. So
0: I'd like to see her serve a little bit longer of a sentence as well. But I'm with you, you know, at a certain point past that maybe 25 years if yeah. she's reformed and if she's remorseful. Yeah, I think um, it's a
1: it's really important that she take ownership. And I don't think it's right to her to for her to smear the victim's name no, by I think, saying he was abusive. Like I would like her to just assuming oh, that Assuming that she's lying. Who knows? Maybe he was abusive. We weren't there. We don't know for sure. That's, I mean,
0: obviously, but I do think that there was a smear campaign and I would like to see her also accept. And apologize
1: to to the family, not only for taking their son, but for then, you know, saying that he was an abuser.
0: All right. Well, that's it. Um, Thank you so much, Amy, for joining me on this episode as always. And before we end today, Amy, do we have any questions?
1: Yes, Megan, we have one question from Jamie Weiner, and her question I think is something that you'll want to answer since this is kind of your area of expertise. We'll see about that. All right, what are your thoughts on trial penalty? Oh,
0: <laughs> that's a good question. Um, the reason this probably is under my uh, area of expertise is because I write uh, a lot or I used to write a lot on plea bargaining practices. So for people who don't know, the trial penalty is essentially... An extra punishment that's leveraged upon people who exercise their right, their constitutional right to a trial. Um, so they get punished more harshly than the people who would plea bargain. And what I think about it is I think that we need to radically restructure and reform the plea bargaining system in this country because 95 to 97% of people are plea bargaining, and it's because of the incentives or It's really because of the punishment they're afraid they're going to face if they don't take a plea, and that's not justice. So my opinion is really that it is bullshit and an unfortunate, another um, part of our system that is in dire need of reform.
1: Okay, the next question is from Jillian. Now, Jillian wants to know if we've ever looked into a case from Ireland, because if you recall, she is from Ireland. So Megan, I'm pretty sure you probably have one on your list. I have one on my list that should be coming up soon, and that is the murder of Elaine O'Hara. And this woman was murdered in 2012. So keep a lookout for that one. Do you have any cases from Ireland on your list?
0: I have one on my list. I'm not sure when I'm going to do it, but I'm sure you'll believe this. But I got interested in the case because of a show I watched on Acorn. Um, The show is called The Secret, and it's based on the true story of... Colin Howell and the murder of his spouse, Leslie it turns out this was such an interesting case in which he got involved with a woman at his church named Hazel. They began having an affair together, and then together they killed both of their spouses. Oh. I know. this, And this one really blew my mind, and I don't want to give it away because there is a surprise ending on this one, which I may have mentioned on Acorn, but this is the one case that has really resonated with me in terms of being from— this was Northern Ireland, so I may cover that case as well.
1: And as always, if you have a particular case that you're interested in out of Ireland, please let us know. We'd love to take a look.
0: Yeah, I think we're, you know, we're, we've are we expanded internationally. We have. <laughs> ACORN helped us do that, but I think we really enjoy doing that and covering cases from different areas now. Yeah,
1: because the laws are so different and, you know, the procedures, it makes, you know, it, we really get to learn a lot when we cover those types of cases.
0: Yep. Thanks again, everyone, for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show while gaining access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include ABC News, CBS, WLWT, the Cincinnati Inquirer, an episode of 2020, the Kentucky Department of Corrections, and lawandcrime.com.